Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week, novelist Kim Sherwood. Uh, Kim's first novel, Testament, was published in 2018 and was longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Award, shortlisted for the Best First Novel Award and won the Bath Novel Award and the Harper's Bazaar Big Book of the Year. A James Bond fan since a young age, Kim has been described as a Fleming aficionado of the highest order. Uh, In 2021, it was announced that a new series of double-O novels penned by Kim had been authorised by the Fleming estate. These new novels mark an exciting departure as they are set in the world of James Bond, but instead turn their focus on a new generation of double-O agents. Double or Nothing, the first in Kim's new Bond series, publishes on the 1st of September, Having been granted an early glimpse at this exciting new thriller, I can confirm that it really does live up to the hype. Kim has used her brilliant talent at characterisation to expand the dramatis personae of the Bond universe, with a story that is sure to attract new fans to the series, as well as delighting its old friends. Kim Sherwood, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. That's all right. Our pleasure. So when I was uh, doing my sort of research into you for the podcast, it came up a couple of times that, uh, you know, you came across James Bond at quite a young age. You're a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, that is, yep, um, in creative writing. And so it's obvious that a love of books, a love of writing, of reading has been with you for a long time. Uh, Was that something you discovered as a child? Yes, absolutely. I was always a really big reader. And, and a writer, actually, um, at a sort of very young age, I very precociously, precociously said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. And I was very lucky that nobody said that's a ridiculous idea. Don't be silly. Um, and I had a very encouraging family. So I was always writing stories. And I was actually always writing spy stories. I used to spy on our neighbours and make notes <laughs> about what they were doing. I'm sure to their delight. And then I would write stories about the things that I had seen. Um, and I'd write in invisible ink that you had to burn the paper to see and in code and all, and all of these things. Um, so, yeah, I was always reading, always writing. Uh, OK, so I, I love how sort of espionage has been <laughs> an interest throughout your life. I love the spying on the neighbours. That's so uh, that's so I can see that with a sort of little notepad. Yeah. yeah. And I presume nothing actually particularly suspicious was happening. It was all very normal going to get their shopping or... Well, there was a body found in the basement of a house near me. I grew up in Kentish Town, which at the time was the capital, uh, the, the murder capital of Europe, which we were oh, very proud of. Yes. Um, and it was, a, I think, perfectly innocently. I think, I think an old man had just passed away in his house. Oh, okay. Um, but of course, to my imagination, yeah. you know, age eight with my magnifying glass. Uh, I was away and, you know, I span this whole conspiracy around this um, and everyone was very tolerant of me. <laughs> yes, I was just about to say, I sp- well, maybe maybe the growing up in the murder capital of Europe <laughs> yeah. encouraged this kind of espionage detective kind of side to you yeah. um, with all of this, you know, uh, this uh, this drama going on uh, in the background. <laughs> that links then to my um, another question I was going to ask, which, you know, what was the setting of, of, of your childhood? So you grew up in Kentish Town. Is, is that yeah. what 
Yes, yeah, so I'm a, a Northwest London girl. Um, I was actually born in our house in Dartmouth Park um, and lived there until I was 18. And it was a really fantastic area to grow up, you know, really good local library in Kentish yep. Town. Um, we had uh, two fantastic local independent bookshops, our books mm-hmm. and the shop that was called Apostrophe. It's not there now. Um, and that was actually where I first went to spend my own money on books, you know, my pocket money. And I would go there and I spent hours browsing the shelf and choosing, is it this one or this one or this one? And I'd make all these piles. I'm a Libran, so I don't make decisions very quickly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was a really lovely place to grow up and very supportive. I don't suppose you remember, because I always feel it's a bit like uh, buying your first uh, album or piece of music, um, I remember mine. It was Love Angel Music Baby by Gwen Stefani. I don't <laughs> I know what it is about me. Um, but uh, what, do, you, do you remember, you know, when you were buying books with your own pocket money, do you remember some of those first books that you were sort of able to choose yourself and, and buy? Yes, it was, the, it was the Famous Five series, which was yes. really the first sort of beyond, beyond picture books and beyond the books that were kind of bought for me. The, the Famous Five was my first sort of obsession. Um, and I would go there and compare all of the covers for the next, you know, the next choice. Um, and I, I, obviously it's, you know, they're, they're books very much of their time yes. uh, politically. Um, but for me, I loved the adventure. I loved yeah. the crime. There were smugglers. There were people escaped from prison. And I loved George. So for me growing up as, you know, what was sort of considered then a tomboy, um, you know, that I, I loved all of these adventure stories and everything. George was such an important figure because he was a girl who was adventurous and brave and resourceful and smart. And she had short hair. I have short hair. I have all my life. So that was important to me that George yes, had short yeah. hair. Uh, and she basically owned an island. So she was, yes. you know, something to aspire to as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that's something a lot of the guests we have on the podcast, you know, talk about those sort of crucial first books. Mm. And it comes up, I think, for every child who's into reading of that, you know, the characters that you identify with. And uh, particularly in, you know, children's publishing now, there's been a sort of great expansion. Because as you say, the uh, Famous Five of its time, obviously, children's publishing these days, there's a great sort of expansion of, you know, who's being represented, who's there um, on the page. And um, yes, the you know the famous five for us is it still has that connection with people. It still sells regularly from our shop. I you yeah. know I was talking to my partner about this the other day, and he said the famous five really he you know he couldn't quite believe that Enid Bond was still shifting books, and I'm like no, like yeah. it's you know a good story endures absolutely and would always um connect with people um whether so from your chart as well are there any other you know any other stories any other particular books that stand out to you as sort of um formative or ones that you particularly built a connection with yeah i remember so for a long time it was famous five and then we went on a holiday uh, to australia which was a really big deal for the millennium i have family in australia and uh, it had been a long time since my mum had seen her sisters. Yep. Uh, I had never been there. Um, so we went for the millennium and I took with me The Hobbit and Watership Down. Right. And I read them back to back and they taught me about death. And I remember getting up in the middle of the night. I was never a good sleeper. I'd always read at night. And I had just read Thorin Oakenshield's death scene in, in the Hobbit. Sorry if this is spoilers, people, for The Hobbit. No. <laughs> um, and I got up in the, in the middle of the night and I went and found my mum and I said, he's but he's dead. He's died. I don't, I don't understand. Like he's not coming back. Yes. Um, and we had this conversation in the, in the, in the garden at my aunt's house in Australia about death and what it meant. 
and that was a that was such a significant moment because it was sort of growing up through books yes yeah absolutely i think as someone who works in a bookshop i feel you know i should only talk about books but i think it's books and also you know i suppose particularly these days all sorts of media now which yeah. you know teach children about you know various aspects of life you know i think for me the first instance of death was actually the film bambi the disney oh, film gosh, yeah. i yeah. think which i think it is for a lot of people yeah um but you know again again it's stories isn't it there's, there's probably children these days who are learning kind of important lessons through even the narratives of games and things like that you know these stories they're such a great way to uh in a sort of a safe environment you know mm. the safe enclosures of the story mm. um to find out about you know life's various ups and downs and yeah um, you know it's um oh so that sounds you know the fact that you're remembering the garden that you know and you're in this sort of special location mm. it sounds mm. like that's really sort of seared itself into your brain it did it did yeah and so, yeah, Watership Down as well. I mean, um, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone about that who hasn't sort of, you know, a part of them intakes breath slightly because, of course, you know, it's quite, it's quite the ride. It's just heartbreaking. Uh, it's, it is, absolutely. I think that I remember when I was in primary school, probably year five, we had this lesson on storytelling and the teacher said, you can't tell a story that's happy. Things have to go wrong in stories. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was a very rebellious child, so I'd always question everything I was told. Um, sitting there thinking, can that be true? Surely there could be a story that was just happy. Mm. Um, and then thinking, well, I mean, I'm sure I don't think it in these terms, but realizing you need conflict. Conflict is the engine for story. Yeah. And that is watership down. It's just, it's just conflict. It's tragedy. And it teaches you a lot at that age. Yes, absolutely. And going from that, so it sounds like you, it's fair to say you grew up in an environment in which, you know, books were available through the library, you know, books were around. Because we sometimes find in the shop you know uh, uh people go through peaks and troughs with reading mm. throughout their life you know they'll read a lot as a child then maybe they'll sort of you know fall out of it, it you know I- i'm getting the feeling for you is it something that's been pretty consistent you know did that go into your teens and then sort of your early adult life and yes absolutely for me reading and writing have always been the consistence of my life really yeah. Um, I think it's when I feel most myself um, when I'm reading or writing, when I'm occupying that kind of imaginary landscape. And that for me is the is part of the joy of writing is to is to hope and imagine that maybe I can give that to somebody else, that I can kind of form a relationship with the reader through what I've written. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, you've said that you're, you know, you've always written. Can you remember some of those kind of early formative stories or are they, you know, have yeah. they been abandoned in sort of the past? Uh, no, my first uh, book that I wrote um, when I was, I don't know how young, maybe, gosh, when I've just learned to write really, so very small. Um, was called The Lion Who Ate the Ladybug. Great. Um, <laughs> like this. Uh, once upon a time, there was a ladybug. The ladybug went for a walk. The ladybug met a lion. The lion ate the ladybug. The end. Great. You don't need more than that, really. You don't need more than that. That's, <laughs> that's everything you need. Yeah. That's everything you need. We have, um, you know, not I don't want to digress, but we have, we, we've done a short story competition um, mm. for children at the shop part of because um uh just 
for our listeners. Um, this will be released in September, but we're recording this in um, it's June um, and it's currently uh, Independent Bookshop Week. So mm-hmm. we've done a short story. And, you know, you can really see, I don't know, it's, it's, it's brilliant reading these, you know, these young people's stories because uh, you can see what interests people, um, but you really can see the sort of basic framework of any, uh, you know, of any story. And of course, you know, as someone yourself who teaches, uh, you know, creative writing, I'm sure that must be something that, you know, interests you. What You know, when people sit down to write a story, mm. you know, the, the kind of the, the elements that kind of links all sorts of stories that kind of turn up. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm a university lecturer in creative writing but I've I've taught creative writing in in all sorts of different settings and one of them was a men's prison so I taught creative writing in a men's prison for two years and that for me was the teaching experience where I learned the most because I had sort of been in teacher training I'd sort of been taught students need to have the essential elements of grammar in place first they need to be able to construct a sentence they need to know these things before they can sort of set a story down but teaching in the prison many of the participants were sort of functionally illiterate. Um, And so that wasn't really what it was about. It was just about storytelling. And it really taught me that you don't need those things. They can come later, those kind of, those sort of building block things. They can come later. Storytelling, I think, is innate. And sometimes we get a little bit rusty. Um, You know, as we get older, we maybe don't have the opportunities to use our imaginations, to be creative. But if you can draw that out of people, these men in the prison, they were the most eloquent storytellers. They were so funny. They were so moving. They they knew the, the sort of story beats to hit, um, you know, the, yeah. the arcs of their lives, um, which they would frame into story. And it was incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. So it, it really showed me as a, as a teacher, as well as a writer, that story, I think, is something that's ingrained in us you know it's in our it's in our dna and and you've just got to bring it out to people sometimes yes yeah something that as you said sort of can become dormant Mm. is always yeah is always there that sounds like an incredibly yeah again sort of formative yeah experience to come across those from a young age we can be taught that you know the kind of the mechanics of language the grammar and everything are the kind of really important stuff but actually yeah the story is the thing that matters you know we have people coming in I'm dyslexic myself with people you know uh coming in who oh I'm you know I'm dyslexic as well with reading and we always find it's about the sort of the the angle of entry as it were if you go well here's something that someone might just find overwhelming then you know they'll sort of abandon it but actually there there is stories out there for everyone it's Mm. just finding that right angle to sort of say welcome them in and you know say that yeah that that's um that that's absolutely uh, uh, accessible um so yeah so things like the hobbit watership down famous five when you were younger uh, um what i'm interested to know is uh, what was the last book that you've read the last book I read, which I would really recommend to people if they haven't read, is The Heat of the Day by Elizabeth Bowen, which was published in 1948. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Bowen, people you know, probably will have heard of. Um, she was publishing uh, before the war, but, but during the war, she was an air raid warden um, and her house was bombed. And she kind of draws on these experiences. So the novel is set in London through the war and it starts on this September day with the light very low uh, coming in at the kind of last of summer turning to autumn. And light is really important through the book. Okay. Her descriptions of seasons and time are so stunning and evocative. 
And it's sort of time in a bubble because it's about people in London during the war, the people who don't get evacuated out, who aren't serving elsewhere, who aren't going out to the land army, the people who are still there working and the the bubble that they live in because of that. Yes. Um, And the intensity of the relationships. It's a spy novel. It's about a a woman who is in a relationship uh, with a man who kind of works in intelligence. Um, She's also doing war work herself. And she's told by a sort of counter espionage agent who, who, who works for the British government that the man that she's in love with um, is a spy for the Nazis. Um, and this, this counter espionage agent says to her, I won't do anything. I won't arrest him. I'll leave him alone if you have a relationship with me. Oh. And so she's caught between th- these questions of is her lover actually a traitor? Yeah. If, if he is. Um, is she still prepared to protect him because of her love for him, because of the intensity of this relationship? What would she do to protect him? Will she have a relationship with this man, Harrison, who's this very kind of um, uh, almost disaffected figure? You know, it's like he doesn't understand how inhumane what he's suggesting is because he always sits outside of typical human behavior. Right, okay. Um, And it's really just a series of escalating conversations through the novel. It just gets tenser and tenser and tenser. All that's really happening is people are talking, uh, but it's it's dialogue to die for. And dialogue is, is one of my favorite things uh, to write oh, and to read, okay. really yes. good dialogue. Um, so I'd, I'd really, really recommend it. It's just fantastic. Um, so it's something that, that interests me because again, you, you know, you say it's uh, an espionage novel. Mm. And um, what interests me there is, you know, you're talking about the the kind of the themes, the ideas that are in that. Would you say sort of the, the espionage novel as a, um, you know, as a genre, as it were, is very flexible in terms of being able to explore, um, you know, various issues, various ideas? Mm. You know, is that what sort of, well, certainly in the sense of the new book coming out, A, a Double or Nothing, is that something that, you know, attracts you to the genre? Absolutely. I think it is a very flexible genre and you can see that in how often it's fused with other genres, yes. but also in its own spectrum. I think spy fiction does lend itself to being a novel of ideas. Yep. Ethics and morality are baked in as problems almost of the novels and also national identity Yes. and notions of loyalty. So I think it's it's always been a genre that in a way is quite philosophical. And I think that's in part because of how it grew up around two world wars. So when we see uh, spy literature kind of in its infancy, um, going back to say John Buchan, um, kind of yeah. early 20th century, or even kind of Ryder Haggard, kind of late 19th century, um, the spies are gentlemen amateurs. It would be very important not to be a professional because if you were a professional spy, that would be considered ungentlemanly because you'd be ah. sleeping on people. Yes, so yeah. they were sort of amateurs, um, gentlemen with time on their hands. You yep. would be well placed for the government to tap them on the shoulder and say, "Would you do us a favour?" And they would go off and go off on a quest. Yes. Um, so, so Thirty Nine Steps is a good example of that by John Buchan. And then through the two world wars, we increasingly have the spy protagonist becoming a professional, uh, mm-hmm. being folded into uh, the increasingly sort of institutionalised world of spies, which really grew up through World War Two. And Ian Fleming was involved in that um, as an intelligence officer himself. Yeah. And so then you have the spy becoming increasingly professional and with that, the questions that were avoided when he was an amateur or she was an amateur come in. What does it mean to spy for your country? What does it mean to live a life of undercover 
identities. Yes. Um, and then we have, you know, writers like Graham Greene, John Le Carre, Ian Fleming, um, really sort of taking on national identities. What does it mean yeah. to represent Britain, especially through the Cold War, when we have these two opposing ideologies, yeah. capitalism and communism, set against each other and worked out and almost uh, worked through in spy fiction. So I think it's always been a genre that's lent itself to ideas and, and lent itself to debate. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I love that idea of, um, you know, that it's ungentlemanly to be, be a professional, mm-hmm. you know, that it's something you do as like a favour, right. like a one-off. Um, but yes, and I suppose, you know, something that's always interesting about it, and that's something that in reading Double or Nothing, I noticed that also that idea of duplicity, you know, you 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 have to be multiple people. Absolutely. Something, you know, all of us non-spies can empathise with, you know, obviously in a uh, espionage novel that's kind of blown up to its highest level mm-hmm. you know all of us have that duplicitous element to us yes and I and I really kind of took my leave on that from Ian Fleming because the the bond of the books in some ways is quite different from the bond of the films he's a little yeah. bit more self-reflective um mm-hmm. yeah. introspective sort of various existential crises through the books yeah. especially as the books get on especially from about from from Russia with Love which is the, the fifth book um, and so he questions himself and he questions what it means to, um, in, in, in From Russia with Love, he refers to it as being pimped for England. Oh, so he, he yes. has that sort of um, interrogation of self, which I yeah. tried to carry through to Double or Nothing into the kind of new characters I was inventing as, as well as Bond himself. Yes. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I suppose, um, you know, for many people, James Bond is, you know, people love the novels, you know, people know them. But, you know, people do also know them from the films and yeah. the films are their own, as with any kind of uh, adaptation from one media to another they are their own um their own thing mm. not necessarily the best thing to say on a on a book podcast no i think uh, it's true i think it's yeah. true i think uh, yeah i think many people uh, come across them in the films and am i right in saying that was that was where you i think i was reading something in the guardian and that's where you mentioned the pierce brosnan films and was that was that your first introduction to them or did you come yeah. to them first very young i saw uh pierce brosnan's on the tv so probably under 10 and i remember just being so awestruck by this man who could dive off dams and yes um you know it was so cool and so suave um and i was already playing my spy games and so immediately i you know i switched to playing james bond absolutely and then i first read uh fleming when i was 12 I was in Camden with my mum we were uh, walking through Camden Market and I said oh one day I want to write a spy story again very precocious and I said but I don't know how I don't know how one does that and my mum said well you better read some then so we went to Black Gold's Books which is a fantastic secondhand bookshop in Camden oh I know it I love that bookshop that's fantastic bookshop yeah so brilliant and I spent a lot of my uh, teenage years in there and I bought from Russia with Love a, in pan paperback, those very kind of fun, lurid, pulpy covers. Yes. And in many ways, that was a book that changed my life because yep. it completely seized my imagination. I loved his his writing. Um, I think in some ways people forget what a fantastic stylist Fleming was. His prose is so um, at times terse and clipped and suspenseful, at times yep. long and beautiful and poetic. He works a lot with colours. It's very visual. It's very cinematic. Yes. And how he describes place just leaps off the page. 
so vividly and I think the film's borrowed from his visual language very heavily in that yes, sense yeah. and it's also as I mentioned From Russia With Love is the fifth in the series it came out in 1956 and so at this point you know Bond has has gone on a few adventures and he's beginning to question himself he wonders if his younger self would would recognize him beneath what he calls mm. the surface of this man who was tarnished with years of treachery and ruthlessness and fear and that sort of self-reflectiveness or self-reflexivity is baked into the plot. And this was something Fleming was so good at doing. If he was thinking about a particular idea or theme, he would externalize it into the story. And wow. so in the plot of From Russia with Love, we have the Russians um, sort of coming up with this scheme to demoralize Britain. Um, and they they sort of have this idea that most of the UK's strength lies in myth. They say the myth of Scotland Yard, of Sherlock Holmes, of the Secret Service. How can we help to destroy the myth and thus strike at the very motive force of this organisation? Where does this myth reside? Have they no one who is a hero to the organisation, someone who is admired and whose ignominious destruction would cause dismay? Myths are built on heroic deeds and heroic people. Have they no such man? And then somebody answers, there is a man called Bond. So Fleming is kind of pointing to this myth of Britain that he has constructed yes. through Bond. Um, and he's saying, let's think about that myth. Let's interrogate it. And, and the novel is about um, both interrogating what he is doing in his novels and interrogating the myth of Britain, the notion of selfhood and nationhood that we have. So I just loved that, that mixture of incredible writing, mm. suspenseful plot, um, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, a, a novel of ideas. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I mean, just you reading that segment there, it's very arresting mm -hmm. and it's brilliant stuff because this is where I have to make a shameful confession on this podcast that you, I've never read any Fleming. Ah. And that, you know, when I, when I, that was my hint earlier of, you know, some people have come across <laughs> films and I was thinking that's you, Jack. <laughs> You know, and I think through that, people then have a very specific idea of what Bond is, yeah. um, which is kind of more reflective of the films, um, mm. you know, at, at the films which, of course, have changed with kind of every, you know, iteration of Bond that has emerged. But yes, really, you know, fascinating what you're saying there. That Those are big questions. And what, what's that myth one in particular is a really interesting one because it feels so fresh. It feels like something, you know, questions that people are asking today and is still you know is still pertinent today you know British values you know what right. you know what does that mean exactly yes, what are they that's brilliant <laughs> to hear because you know it shows that people have that particular image of Bond in their head you know of the of the great sort of entertainment mm. of the films that actually for the books for you know the shameful people like me who you know haven't read them you, that there's um there's a greater sort of depth that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think of or be aware of when coming across them. Yeah. And I would suggest for, for people who haven't read it, so if you were interested to read them, I'd, I would suggest to start with Casino Royale, start at the beginning. Yeah. Because Fleming is sort of on this project of constructing this, this heroic myth built on great deeds of James Bond. But even in that book, he's constructing it and he's deconstructing it. So at the end of that first book, Bond wants to quit. And he says it's all a game of cops and robbers. It's all a game. Yeah. This idea of good versus evil. And games are very important to Fleming, as you see in something like Goldfinger, um, where, you know, a lot of the book is about golf. Yes. But he was really interested in this notion of games, which is also kind of baked into spy fiction. Spying or espionage in the early 20th century was called the great game. Right. And in some ways it was about that quarry, that quest. Yeah. And 
mapped onto that are very serious matters. Yes. So he was interested, I think, in this notion of game playing, of this notion of kind of setting up the rules, setting up the rules of the game and then questioning them and having Bond become with each book more and more conscious of the implications of what he's doing and the consequences of his actions. And so there's a fantastic arc to the character in the novels that in some ways you don't have in the films, you know, simply because the films for a long time were more self-contained adventures. Yes. Yeah. So the books in a way lend themselves to an arc, which which perhaps we've seen more of with Daniel Craig because we saw him get his double O status yeah. and then we, well, I don't, I don't want to spoil what happens in No Time to Die in case people haven't seen it, but um, (laughs) there's an end to that arc. So, um, you know, in some ways that introduced the the role of time um, from the novels. So I would, you know, I'd I'd really recommend anybody who um, is is curious about Bond to to check out Fleming's writing. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, reading from Russia with Love and those um, those Fleming novels was obviously very formative for you and sounded like it was quite a sort of an inspiring experience for you. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, takes us perfectly to Double or Nothing, um, which publishes on the 1st of September. Explain to me, I can't even imagine, you know, for someone who grew up with these novels and who, you know, who loves telling stories, you know, by this point, you'd already had Testament come out, which was greatly praised, nominated for all of these awards, which on its own must have been an absolutely, you know, wonderful sort of experience for a writer. But then, you know, how did you feel when you had heard the estate, basically, you got the go ahead that, you know, you could write a a sort of a Bond world novel? Oh, it was extraordinary. It it came about uh, sort of in stages. So, the first thing I knew about it was that I'd got a call from my agent who said the Fleming estate would like to talk with you about writing Bond. They had been looking for a while for a new writer. They really wanted somebody for whom, you know, Fleming was very important. It's very important to the estate that their writers are real fans. Yes. Yeah. And my, my agent had heard this and um, being uh, fantastic. She had remembered that the very first time I had lunch with her, I said to her, oh, one day I want to write James Bond, which I've said to everybody all my life, um, you know, half jokingly, you don't really expect it to happen. Yes. But she remembered this and she remembered as well that when Testament came out, my first novel, I had tweeted a picture of it in a bookshop next to Anthony Horowitz's Bond. And I tweeted something like, oh, one step closer to my dream of writing Bond. So she went and she found that tweet from 2018, screenshot it and sent it to the estate and said, this, this might be the writer for you. They then read Testament, they really liked it, and they invited me to to send them some ideas. But they also said, you know, do you have a sort of way of showing you, that you're a fan? Um, because it is really important to them that their writers care deeply. Oh, wow, yes. Yeah. So I, uh, very, very luckily, um, my mum had kept a school report I'd written when I was probably 13. We were asked to write about an author we admire, and I chose Ian Fleming, and I still had that school report. So I sent them a scan of that and I said, you know, this is quite literally a lifelong dream. And they invited me to send some ideas of, you know, what it is that I would write about. Um, and I did that and then we met. Um, and the, the whole estate and the whole family are so welcoming and so encouraging. They're wonderful. And they just immediately kind of welcomed me in. But when I found out that it was definitely happening was actually the the night of the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, which I was shortlisted for. Um, I didn't win. Raymond Antrobus won, who's an amazing poet. But I was there yes. in the London Library, um, you know, for, for that award night. 
And um, then I got a message from my agent saying it's happening. So I had the biggest smile oh. on my face all night. And people, people probably yes. wondered, well, what's she smiling about? She didn't win. But, you know, I, I felt like yes. I had. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Mm. Yes, obviously, this process, you know, there's never sort of one call where it's like mm. you're writing Bond and that's it. You know, th- th- there's a whole process to it. But that that moment when it was confirmed, I mean, you know, must have been just yet such an exciting occurrence to, to, to happen and um so it sounds like already by that point you would kind of uh, had you sort of mapped out the you know the idea you were going with you know basically when they said yep you're doing it you know was it right goodness where do I go from here or, or was it actually quite sort of set out what the next steps were so what they asked me to do was to kind of expand the James Bond universe so expand the heroes bring in some other double o agents and that was the that was the only brief if you like and and beyond that i was completely free to sort of imagine into it however i liked so for me as we as we've been talking about you know i've been dreaming of this all of my life so in a way it was just an opportunity to write down all of the things that i'd always you know made up in my head but i also revisited all of the fleming books reread all of them rewatched all of the films i was looking for threads you know threads that fleming had left yes that i could follow things that he'd set running that he hadn't tied up at the end or ideas that he'd begun to explore that i might pick up today it's set in the present world it's contemporary so it was also a question of how to modernize the world of bond And because they wanted a new raft of characters, I thought, well, let's have James Bond missing at the start of the Mm, story. Yes. Um, And then kind of go from there because almost metafictionally, he's missing if you bring in new heroes because that's not what we are accustomed to in Bond. Yes. So again, taking that leaf from Fleming, bake that idea into the plot. So he's he's missing... um, the beginning of this novel, um, he's been captured perhaps by um, a kind of sinister a terrorist organization. Nobody knows really. Um, and then from there, I began to map out these new heroes who were searching for him and facing a new global threat. Yes. Yeah. And that's from reading it, you know, something that really, and of course, you know, again, I will not be giving any spoilers away. I, I'll, I'll stay very lightly on on what the new novel is like. But yeah, something that really strikes you is, yes, from the beginning, you're you know, aware that Bond is missing. But what's lovely is he's missing, but he's still very present. You know, the the people that we are meeting, they all have their ideas or you know previous interactions with bond and so you know for me that really stood out because i can really see you know for someone like myself who's maybe not as familiar with the bond series the bond world in terms of novels um uh, you know it's not an area i've explored yet you know for me it was a really wonderful entry into that and um you know there were some characters there that i you know could sort of identify with or you know it felt very it felt very fresh Mm -hmm. very much set in today but also true to its origins, which is, that's a a very fine balance to have struck, you know, that's a, you know, that's a really wonderful, yeah, really wonderful thing to have achieved. Thank you. I'm I'm really delighted to hear that. And I, I sort of almost mapped it out. I thought of it like gravity. I thought James Bond is like a star and he has his own gravity. So how did the other characters relate to that? Some of them have had very close relationships with him. So um, 003 Johanna Harwood um, was in a romantic relationship with him. 
009 Sid Bashir. Bond was his mentor. Yeah. Um, and Bashir and Harwood are now engaged. So there was a sort of tension between the three of them over yeah. over the sort of mutual love. Um, whereas 004 Joseph Dryden, um, he just knows Bond as a sort of fairly arrogant, somewhat attractive, surly man yes. um, who he's come across every now and again doesn't really care all that much. Yeah. Um, he's on his own arc. So I tried to think who is very close to Bond, who who desperately wants to find him and get him back, and who has their own concerns and their own storyline, and to forge that balance. So I'm I'm delighted to hear that that uh, that you know that balance resonated uh, with you. You know, absolutely. And in terms of you know, you mentioned sort of Dryden has his own you know his own arc and again you know i don't want to go you know into too much you know detail to ruin anything for anyone but you know that as well you know the stories that appear in double or nothing again you know wonderfully in the same way that you know the original bond stories do feel very much rooted in today and mm. various kind of global concerns or you know issues that are going on and again you know from the first couple of pages that really struck me and it you know it just instantly pulls you in because you know it, it feels it's new it's exciting because it's you know this wonderful sort of espionage story but it also feels very you know th- this is the world I'm living in in many ways yeah absolutely and and again that was something that I took my leave on from Fleming because he chose as his villains the greatest threats of his day um you know whether it was a sort of existential or ideological threat yep. like communism or whether it was the very practical uh, threat like the atomic bomb and so i thought what are what are our greatest threats that we're facing today and so this first book double or nothing is about the climate crisis yes. because to me that felt like the that level of both existential mm. and very practical very real fear um, that that we're facing today Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I hope this doesn't give too much away. But, you know, again, as well, the sort of the figure of the charismatic billionaire, Mm. you know, it's that's something, you know, you'd switch on the news today. And one of those various sort of characters will be in the news for something, you know, so very, again, sort of felt very true to the origins, but again, very much rooted in today. Yes. And Fleming, interestingly, the first few novels, the, the villains are sort of state actors, and then they turn private individuals and the films very much went that way. Um, and when you watch the old films and it's an eccentric billionaire who's trying to, you know, sink the world underwater or something, you think, oh, OK, you know, that's that's a bit of fun. It's a bit tongue in cheek. But here we are today living with with billionaires uh, firing off in rockets and, uh, you know, on their super yachts. And yes. it doesn't seem so fanciful. Anymore, no, so no. It's, that, yeah. that felt to me like it was still very much relevant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah, that really comes across uh, on the page. And I think, thank you so much. I think that brings us to an end. So Double or Nothing, as I said, comes out on the 1st of September. And this is quite a difficult thing, you know, to ask of you, but I'm sure fans of Fleming, fans of James Bond will be sort of gravitating towards it already. But um, for those of us, you know, for instance, who are quite new to the Bond world, we label this section usually as kind of, you know, the book everyone should read. So my (laughs) final question to you is why should people go out and read this book? You know, what's your what's your sort of pitch to the to the general public? Well, I hope that. For old fans of Fleming, for old fans of Bond, it will resonate. It will deliver on the things that we love about Bond, that we love about that universe. And I hope that it will bring new readers in as well. I hope that it's thrilling and moving and funny uh, with a gritty edge. Um, There's a lot in the book that deals with real world concerns. So I hope that it can also bring in new readers. And I hope that 
you know, with, with, with James Bond, as I said, you know, when I was little, I would play at James Bond and he was the hero. The opportunity of being able to bring in an ensemble cast is that you can have a really diverse range of characters who I hope everybody can identify with. I hope everybody can find themselves in one of these heroes. So I hope that people come away from it, um, you know, with, with heart rate raised and hopefully looking forward to the next book. Absolutely. And I, I can certainly say from having having read it myself, we were talking earlier about the importance of stories and just, you know, it's a fantastic story. And I always think a, a great story will always find its readers and Double or Nothing is a is a fantastic story. Um, thank you. Kim Sherwood, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you for having me. This has been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us.